0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Eastern Approaches podcast. This is episode number six. Last episode, we started out on a really deep dive into the empires that helped shape what is now Central and Eastern Europe and looked at the the history and the nitty gritty on those empires and talked also just about some of the effects they had on social issues and cultural issues. But today, we're going to have a little bit more practical look those empires so in this episode ben's going to take a look at what all this empire talk actually means for today's traveler so take it away ben
1: um okay so kind of to wrap this empire's theme up we want to talk about what does this mean for the traveler history is nice and well and good and i hope interesting to everybody but we'll boil it down and make it kind of practical what can you do with this if you're thinking about traveling to these parts of the world or you have traveled to them and would love to go back? Um, some general thoughts, first of all, from me on what does this empire stuff mean for the traveler? One thing, which I kind of touched on before, is that the more eastern empires, so like the Ottomans and the Tsarist Empire, they weren't that urbanized. So if you compare that with even the Habsburg Empire, but then certainly further west. With you know France, for example, or Germany, or something, um, those Eastern empires were not that urbanized. So that means that there's fewer historic cities in those parts of the world. Aside from a couple exceptions like Istanbul, Saint Petersburg, Moscow, generally speaking, the there's not so many cute small towns uh, in these Eastern bits. You know, they're not as prosperous as you might think of in france or the netherlands or belgium where you have really we have really dense urban societies or even southern england um, really dense urban societies even into the kind of early middle ages northern italy too Um, and now you have all these cute and and prosperous historic towns well you don't get that in what is today uh, russia ukraine belarus so much um not so much turkey either because you know it's just the historical development was different and that means kind of what excites can you expect to see there again not always the small cute prosperous little towns um and only a few really big uh historic cities but of course there's still plenty to see as we'll talk about um one thing that uh some of this historical empire influences also mean for traveler is that there's Often fewer crowds the farther east you go, and Andrew and I talk about this all the time. But um, you know, people flock to the big stuff in uh, in Italy and France and Spain to a certain extent. Um, but you know, you can see amazing imperial capitals in St. Petersburg or Moscow, where you know it's not quite as thronged for example, as, say, the Vatican Museums in Rome. I mean, you know, the the Hermitage is pretty busy, but it's maybe not as crazy-making as uh, the Vatican Museums in Rome. Um, So maybe fewer crowds overall, but there's also fewer international tourists, especially when you get outside of the capitals. And this is one of the things, which again, a common theme from us, but that I always, reason why i love and recommend this part of the world for travel is that um you know you will head into some town or some village um which is probably lovely interesting um stuff to see and you're not going to hear a bunch of other american canadian australian british accents right like if there's tourists they might be more local tourists or they might be Regional tourists, right? Like people from around the Balkans going to each other's countries, and I think that's just a huge, huge bonus. That um, you know you're you're getting to places often. Um, the further east you go in some of these more eastern empires, where like the tourism, international tourism is still just not at the level as it is the further west you go. And to me, that is in many ways a plus.
0: Yeah, it's it's like you have the the whole place to yourself um with with um with the the caveat that um most of these places as I, we've discussed before is English is is really good. I mean I think the further the further east or central you go, um uh especially from like Mediterranean countries, um there's gonna be it's gonna be it's still gonna be easy even if there's not lots of American or English speaking tourists there. So um you 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 get the you get the convenience of like okay it's not a struggle to communicate or to buy things or whatever and there's less tourists there so a lot of the times you know you're not your the prices you're paying are really good value and also i think because there's because there's not as many tourists then you're looked at differently mm-hmm. um and you're valued more by by the locals and it's easier to make some connections with locals as well because it's not like they're inundated with thousands and thousands and thousands of people just kind of sleepwalking through their cities, taking photos for two hours before they go on the bus to the next place. So I think you get a better experience and I think you're always valued higher as, as a tourist by the locals there then you then you are if you're like okay you're the millionth person to come to venice today and if you mm-hmm. don't like it who gives a shit because there's a million <laughs> other people coming coming the next day so there's you know and i could understand there's there's not a so much incentive when you're living in these western countries with mass tourism to maybe to really care so i always feel like you get a you get a you get a better like shake at kind of meeting local people there. And I think you're,
1: you're appreciated more. Mm, Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you, you totally hit the nail on the head there. Like um, not only is there, are are travelers, I feel like to some of the, these Eastern destinations in particular, maybe they're there more intentionally. Like they know what they're seeing in contrast perhaps to some of the big coach bus tours, you know, in, in Western Europe where like, what town are we in? I don't know, but there's a statue I'm gonna take a picture of, right? Like, so I think there's a kind of different mindset um, that people have who come to some of these more eastern places, which I think is great.
0: Um, yeah, like the yeah, you're right. Like the quality of of tourist, whether it's American or Australian or wherever it's from, is probably on a higher level. Like they mm-hmm. they know more because otherwise, you know, they might have just skipped these places, but they they were more interested in seeing something different and. Perhaps they, they're more interested in in history. Um, and also, they just don't want to be in the same places where everyone else is at. So uh, I think you do have a, a, a smarter uh, clientele there.
1: Yeah. And to boil it down for everybody listening, what we're saying is people who go farther east are just a better class of people. <laughs> well, duh. <I> mean, <laughs> duh. <that's all. laughs> yeah. Um, one thing i was also going to say though um andrew kind of based on what you said is on the language stuff one there's an interesting um connection there also to the historical legacies of these empires in that yeah english is definitely um very useful wherever you're gonna go but man if you've got russian anywhere that was part of the tsarist empire in particular not necessarily the soviet empire but anywhere there the once belonged to the Russian Empire, Russian might help you more than English, some of those places. Um, so that thing, that helps. And then even places with that belong to the Ottoman Empire, particularly interior Turkey, I've often found like English, yeah, it does it's still good to have, but that don't necessarily expect people to get very far with you with English. Um, some of the kind of interior empire parts, I guess I would say.
0: I think German would be also would be good mm-hmm. anywhere, but just on the just the simple fact that Germans travel everywhere and they have mm-hmm. always traveled, they've traveled longer in these countries than let's say English speaking people have so that seems to be like the, you know, and let's say in Southeast Europe, you've got so many Yugoslavs who went to Germany to work. Mm. So German is, you could always find German menu. You could always, someone if if someone in any of these countries, if they don't speak English, usually um, I would say German would be, would be the next best thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Other than probably, you know, maybe Baltics and obviously Mm. Russian speaking countries, even places like Poland, you know, you've always got issues like, hey, you know, do they mm-hmm. speak Russian? Do they and then do they want to speak Russian? Yeah. Uh, so but uh, I think I think there's a I think we need to interview uh, some Germans at some point because they are like they travel, you know, like no matter where you go, you're like, oh, yeah, just some more German motorcyclist mm-hmm. guys, you know, doing some like, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, five week uh, trip around Eastern Europe on their bikes or whatever. So
1: uh, <laughs> yeah. well, I, I asked a German friend about that thing one time like geez why why do Germans just travel so much and her response note this is a joke made by a German okay so don't put this one on me she said if you lived in germany ben wouldn't you want to get out too okay sure. that's just just a joke people i love germany but anyway um okay so on the some other thoughts on what does this mean for the traveler um okay so some of these eastern empires might not have say the roman colosseum for example or I don't know what um, you know, Windsor Castle, or some of these famous kind of monuments. But I'll tell you what: there are some fantastic Roman ruins over a lot of this part of the the world where the Roman Empire, uh, especially the Western Roman Empire, once held sway. And it doesn't need to be the Colosseum um, because there you can find interesting barely visited incredibly well-preserved like uh, ruins of villas like and Roman mosaics, like Roman country houses with their mosaic floor still intact, or just temples, which nobody hardly goes to anymore, um, but they're still there in some way and just a great archaeological site. So there's so much to explore that's not just like the big headline stuff of, say, the Colosseum and Roman ruins or just the other, you know, calendar image photos, say, Western Europe. There's so many kind of uh, more I don't know what micro level incredible uh, aspects of the heritage of the Roman Empire that are totally worth seeing, and you don't have to share them with busloads of other people.
0: Oh yeah, there's the you 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 kind of when you start the more you start scratching there, you're like oh wow look at this this collection of of uh Roman ruins or whatever, like mm-hmm. okay, it, you might actually get to walk around it and touch it even more mm-hmm. so, you know, it's like it, I think it's definitely with castles, like any castles or fortresses, like yeah. hey, explore your own. Like like don't fall there's like no guardrail there. And if you fall mm-hmm. off the ledge, you know, like you know, we're you know, you you know, someone sells to pay for your funeral, because we're not paying for it. (laughs) But, but it's kind of like, hey, whatever you want, you know, it's not like there's all these signs, like, don't do this, don't do this, don't touch this. Here, Mm -hmm. it's like, hey, it's like, it's all, it's like, you explore as, as, as much as you want. And I kind of, like that because you do like oh okay this feels like a real fortress because i could just kind of climb anywhere on it Mm -hmm. uh, not just be like okay and then i have to go to this line and you know then there's this one little door i have to get in here and everything's roped off so i can't touch it Mm -hmm. uh things so yeah it is um there's a lot more kind of hands-on cool stuff even if a lot of it's not on your um kind of tick off box or whatever Mm -hmm. you know your bucket list uh kind of crap
1: yeah absolutely um and then last general thought is anticipate soviet style cities anywhere that was in the soviet empire especially that actually belonged to the soviet union soviet style cities so as we call them in the czech Czech panilaki so those big concrete uh socialist style apartment blocks you're just going to see those a lot doesn't mean they're bad right um or or you know bad housing but they're just that's what cities look like um it's the fabric of cities in this part of the world uh to a certain extent uh you'll see stalinist architecture you'll see brutalist architecture like just the laughably bad um communist architecture um a sort of urban design that just would never pass muster today like just even yesterday here in prague as i mentioned there's some there's uh some like live close to kind of a Communist era housing settlement, and you know, just walking along, and there's like no street level life, it's kind of these raised platforms you walk along, and then these big monolithic apartment blocks. And that was like thought to be good urban design by those architects in the 1960s, but like nobody would design that way today. Um, and the reason I mention this is because you know, the empires that were here, in particular the Soviet Empire, uh, made cities like this. And if you learn how to navigate and anticipate that kind of design of these cities, especially in kind of the, the outskirts, where, you know, where the they really developed in the 20th century, then you'll, you will, A, appreciate them and understand them, but can just navigate them in a way, because you can, like, know where to expect that, okay, well, maybe around, there's this forest of big concrete housing blocks, but if there's a metro station or a bus station, there's always going to be a grocery store right there, because that's the way these places were designed.
0: Yeah, and certainly, I mean, that is one good thing with uh, a lot of the Soviet places is you do have metro, you do do have transport and metro systems. So these sprawling cities, uh, you know, you, you can usually just go underground and hop on a metro and get get around. I mean, Budapest is, is like one of the easiest places, mm. uh, and and Prague is as well. I guess I, I'm thinking maybe Prague's metro isn't as extensive as Budapest, but it was always just like if you if you think oh here's this place in my guidebook oh but it's outside this the the tourist center or this the old town or whatever you just you know hey okay just spend two minutes on on how, what you need to do to get a metro ticket and how you validate mm-hmm. it or whatever. And you just get a metro map out. Nowadays you can find everything online and in English. It's like super easy. So you can really get around to see some of these places that you might be like, oh, that's far out and I don't know how to get there. So that's one 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 nice legacy I think is, is transportation.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, there may be a little bit of a learning curve to figure out how to get that metro ticket but then you'll find oh that metro ticket only cost 30 cents um compared to uh, the london tube for example where like a single metro journey on the tube is going to cost you upwards of three dollars so uh, it's worth the investment to figure these in- infrastructures out sometimes um okay so now talking about some really specific um things about what does this mean for the traveler just some monuments right again um attached to the empire from which they maybe uh, arose or under which they arose and again not exhaustive just some highlights for me and for andrew some amazing amazing roman ruins as we mentioned including some stuff which is bucket list and for me one of the greatest um architectural remnants of the roman empire anywhere is the emperor diocletian's palace that splits like I am just endlessly fascinated by that place that today there's a city inside a Roman emperor's palace. And, you know, you can just literally look and see kind of the flagstones that maybe the emperor once walked. And, you know, people live on an, in an apartment just right above that. Right. So so split as this incredible maze of a city inside a Roman emperor's palace is to me uh, one of the most fascinating um, Roman ruins anywhere and it's not in Italy right it's in Central and Eastern Europe
0: yeah and staying in Croatia I would you know then say hey go go to the Pula Arena which is uh Pula is the big the biggest city in the Istria region of, of Croatia in the north and you have the largest Roman arena outside of Italy there um they still they still hold some concerts um and that whole I mean, you also have some Roman temples from I think second and third AD also in Pula as well. Mm-hmm. Although one of one of one of the temples was like it it got like uh I think they had to rebuild it and then it got rebuilt nice. maybe in maybe I want to say renaissance time and then it also got rebuilt in the 20th century so you have like some Tito Baroque as we call it there so it's like the this second uh, century AD Roman temple and it's got like two or three other different architecture styles mixed in
1: Uh, Mm -hmm. and I
0: kind of like it like that like hey let's not like redo the whole thing and make it all kind of shiny like it was back like made originally back in the in the uh, second century, but let's just keep it there so you could kind of s- easily see the layers of of, of history um, in Pula. And another, and another interesting thing about that arena was um, when it was under, when that region was under Venice, there was talk of let's let's move it stone by stone to Venice. So if you thought Venice had a problem with sinking now, <laughs> I'm not sure what would have happened if they're like, you know, um, you know, hey, let's just move this whole huge arena and stick it and stick it there. So fortunately, whoever like whoever vetoed that should like have their name on like a coin or something in Croatia, I think.
1: Yeah, there was a guy. I'm trying to forget his name, but yeah, there's this one like Venetian senator who said, "Yeah, this is a stupid idea." Um, okay, so other other Roman Empire monuments, um, but the Eastern Roman Empire, so Byzantine. So there's not as much like Byzantine stuff around as kind of the Western Roman Empire. But, of course, the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul uh, and some various other like Byzantine churches in Istanbul are there. And, you know, Hagia Sophia, uh, you've got to go see it. That is a total bucket list to me. Like, that's the place you have to see before you die. And the fact, you know, I was just there a few years ago for the first time, finally made it. And the fact that still sticks with me is that for about a thousand years, uh you know 500-ish when it was first built until 1500-ish I guess the Hagia Sophia was the largest building in the world for a thousand years and that is a legacy of the Byzantine Empire so pretty amazing um though there's some other stuff too like I love Byzantine mosaics and Ravenna which is actually in Italy is one of the best places for Byzantine mosaics but there's um some Byzantine mosaics actually pretty close to you right Andrew?
0: Yeah, uh, down in Poric in Croatia, which is once again like a, in this Istrian uh, uh, peninsula, there's a uh, euphrasian Basilica from fifth century, and there's some great golden uh, mosaics there, um, and some other pieces to the complex that I think are third and fourth century. So, um, yeah, I haven't been to I haven't been to Ravenna uh, and hmm. seen those mo- mosaics, but I just looking at it, I think it's it, it, it's I think, in the same ballpark as what mm-hmm. Porch has, or Porch is in the same ballpark as, as what Ravenna has. So yeah, I think you're right. There isn't as much easily noticeable Byzantine um, sites uh, other than, of course, obviously, what you're going to see in Istanbul and parts of Turkey.
1: Mm-hmm. In terms of the Ottoman Empire, um, there's lots of impressive stuff. A lot of it is mosques. So there's just classic... Ottoman-style mosques. But some of them are really amazing and huge, not just the ones in Istanbul, though those are incredibly impressive. But, you know, Edirne in, um, in Turkey, which is just kind of across the border from Bulgaria, so firmly on the European continent, has one of the most amazing Ottoman mosques anywhere. Besides uh, Ottoman mosques, big and small, there's all kinds of other aspects of Ad- uh, Ottoman monuments one of the most beautiful is of course the Ottoman bridge in Mostar in in Bosnia and Herzegovina specifically, over the Nedetva River. I think one of the most beautiful uh, bridges in the world and is a really like total um like trademark, I guess, for some of the grace and um uh precision of Ottoman engineering.
0: I think I think anywhere in the Balkans you've got a lot of really beautiful bridges i mean no, nothing nothing uh that really compares so much to to mostar um but you could certainly see that that style of architecture and then like sarajevo we were talking about earlier um it's a perfect place to see two different empires there but the mm-hmm. uh, turkish the old turkish quarter uh with all the shops and people still working working with metal and copper um like that is that's just so different. I mean, there's, I think Skopje has a, has a little bit of that in their old town and it's been 10 mm-hmm. years since I've been there, so I don't know um, how it is. But there's a lot of places in the, in, the, in, in the Balkans where you get this real Ottoman vibe. And I kind of, I, I have to say like, when I went to Istanbul the first time about seven years ago, I had more of like, okay, I know all the Ottomans from, from the Balkans And I was expecting kind of more of that there and it and it wasn't and I was you know in some regards just kind of disappointed because like oh okay yeah maybe sometimes you know you 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 don't need to be in the epicenter or the capital of that empire but you need to be outside of it to see their influences more
1: yeah interesting yeah I mean I I agree on on like Skopje has a nice Ottoman quarter and and uh, and a number of other you can find that a number of other towns in the Balkans, like in in Kosovo, for example, Prizren is another like very Ottoman kind of feeling town. So um, a lot of a lot of ways to kind of connect to that empire's heritage. Um, Venice. So keep your eyes open anywhere in the Eastern Mediterranean for that winged lion of St. Mark. So the the symbol of Venice. And I guarantee you, you will see that winged lion stamped in all kinds of places you might not be expecting because Venice was all over the place in the Eastern Mediterranean. And when you recognize that winged lion, you'll say, aha, this was Venice. And I think in particular, just to mention one like Venetian monument in Eastern parts of Europe, and that is Rhodes, right? So the island of Rhodes, this enormous medieval fortress built up at Rhodes. A lot of it is like Venetian fortress architecture, and you'll find the Venetian lion stamped there um, as testaments to this was Venice. So, you know, Venice didn't necessarily build churches or aqueducts or, you know, great art throughout its empire, but it definitely built some pretty impressive military architecture. And it built like often like town halls and, and, uh and city gates where you'll find that winged lion stamped.
0: Yeah, you could you could really go anywhere and and if you go anywhere in Croatia on the coast and and Montenegro too, you it, it's it's hard not to see the mm-hmm. winged lion. So yeah, I mean like I think Kotor Cot- and Montenegro that's got the wall around it. It's it's like it's actually very different than D- Dubrovnik. Even though like these two walled cities on the water are very mm-hmm. close to each other, and Dubrovnik that was not Venice or certainly it was built up not from from venice but kotor was so you could see you can see the um
1: uh
0: their stamp uh, that whole bay of kotor area in, in montenegro
1: mm-hmm. and then for the Habsburgs, i mean there's so much you could talk about because anywhere that was the Habsburg empire the cities also often have kind of a um a characteristic look at least the parts that were built up in the 19th centuries and i 19th century and I always like mentioning, like, look at the theaters, because almost every Habsburg city of any size got a major theater, which was like the Opera House and the Ballet Theater and, you know, where you had high culture. And almost all of them were designed by this Vietnamese, Vietnamese, <laughs> Viennese firm uh, called uh, Felna. and so, And they all kind of look alike, these elaborate wedding cake pieces of architecture. But look at those, that's a Habsburg stamp. I just wanted to mention, though, just to zoom in on one example of like Habsburg monuments is stand on the Danube in Budapest, and you look at you can see the the Parliament right there in the river. You look across at at Buda at Castle Hill, which is now sort of a hodgepodge of you know rebuilt historical stuff, but all these then all the kind of grand um, buildings from right around 1900 in Budapest. You know, all that is from the time of Austria-Hungary, you know, the the last apogee zenith of the Habsburg Empire, um, and that kind of grandeur and uh, opulence, Um, Budapest is just a great symbol of this, um, the power and multicultural, um, like cultural attributes of this great Central European monarchy, the Habsburg monarchy.
0: Yeah, and you could really, you could see, uh, you can go to kind of all the corners of that empire. So you can go all the way west to Adriatic, and you you could see Trieste, which is so much more a Habsburg city than it's than an Italian one. I, I always say it's the least Italian city that I've ever seen. Because mm. uh, well, it, it had very little to do with Italy. That's why when it was right. built, uh, you can go um, very, very east and get into Lviv and uh, even uh, uh, which is in more south, southwest or south central Ukraine. And when you're if you were just dropped off there, blindfolded and you looked around, you would for sure, not think you're in Ukraine. I think you it it looks so much like Austria and and mm-hmm. Czech there. Um, and then if you go further south, then you run into Sarajevo, and then you like we mentioned, uh, you've got that dividing line, and all of a sudden it's like okay, there's the Turkish quarter, and it ends. And right here you can see uh, late 19th century um, Habsburgs uh, building that part. So you can kind of go all these different directions. Uh, from from Vienna or from this kind of center of Europe and just see their influences.
1: Yeah, kind of like the winged lion with Venice. There's just this Habsburg style uh, from the late 1800s. In fact, one joke which I may can't remember if I've used this one uh, on an episode before, but one joke I heard once is, um, "What is the definition of Central Europe?" And the answer is, "It's where all the big public buildings are yellow." because there was this Habsburg color called Kaiser Gale, or Imperial Yellow, Maria Theresa Yellow. And just like Andrew's saying, you can go to the far-flung corners of what was once the Habsburg Monarchy, and you're just gonna see this kind of style. And I bet you it's like the big buildings, like the post office building or maybe the train station or you know, like the city hall or something, it's gonna be painted yellow because that was the color of big public buildings in Habsburg Monarchy. Okay, so as my last monument, one from the Soviet empire. And that is the crazy amazing statue of Match, like the motherland statue in Kiev, in in Ukraine. Um, think, if you've never seen it, think kind of like, I don't know, a Soviet statue of liberty. Uh, it's an, actually a World War II monument, really. Um, the sacrifices of the motherland to defeat fascism. And there's a whole, Kind of soviet holdover world war ii museum and like the base of the statue but it's this great silver lady holding like a sword out overlooking the nepa river in kiev and um you can go up in the statue too and and like look out of it um it really is like i don't know how it's compares size-wise to the statue of the river, but that's kind of feel just this huge metal lady uh metal communist lady in this case and that is Absolutely, a, a monument from a vanished empire, like all these other ones, because it it does acknowledge, you know, the Soviet Union's important role in defeating Hitler. Um, but then, kind of the aesthetics uh, and symbolism of that statue are just as if it might be, you know, uh, Pula's amphitheater or something. It's just a, a, a reflection of a time that is vanished, and that I found pretty fascinating.
0: Is that? would that be similar to what's in tbilisi um cuz they've got this, mm. they've got the similar they've got the statue of the woman holding the sword and she's also mm. holding out i want to say some food or she's holding out some water uh, like water like kind of like we we're, we like we will help you but we also have the sword and i don't know if that if that was a soviet thing or if that was there beforehand
1: yeah i think that one in tbilisi is is not a soviet monument or any it's certainly a different like purpose to that monument and the one in kiev is bigger too is my recollection yeah so pretty impressive though um and uh yeah and like i said uh uh vanished age um okay so that's some monuments another topic for like what do these empires mean for the traveler though is just getting around like there's actually influences from these empires on what it's like traveling in these parts of the world based on like infrastructure. To boil it down, the farther west you are, the better train connections are gonna be because the Habsburgs built up the rail network much better than certainly the Ottomans because the Ottomans didn't do very much of anything. But then even like the Tsarist empire, yeah, there's trains, um, but it's much, Denser and generally speaking, much better anywhere there was Habsburg. Better roads, typically too. Um, and Andrew, I knew you were—you've had experience like with trains in the Balkans and that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. In the Balkans, it's. Yeah, because the Ottomans—I don't—I don't know what—I don't think they built much at all. But some places like the Balkans, it's—it's it's also the terrain and geography because it's mm. just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's hard to build. So it, you know, central Central Europe—if you think most of the places of the Habsburgs, it's m- relatively flat. I mean, you might have mountain ranges you go through, but the terrain in general is is a bit more flat than in the Balkans. So um, I think some of it is. Is The Habsburgs obviously weren't on in the Balkans very long, mm-hmm. uh, and the Ottomans didn't uh, do much with tra- uh, building up trains. And then you just have the actual terrain itself there uh, that kind of plays into the fact that it's the infrastructure is not, not so good.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I would love to do someday, so anybody who's listening, if you want to hire Andrew and me to be your guides, is to take a boat around what used to be the venetian empire kind of charter your own boat because to really see to connect the old venetian outposts you'd need a boat but that would be an amazing amazing trip around the adriatic and eastern mediterranean yeah like
0: venice to rhodes or something like that
1: yeah i mean that would be super sexy um one other thing i was just thinking about though in terms of like the legacy of these empires for getting around is in where the roman empire was the western roman Empire. Still, a lot of the times, some of the main roads follow old Roman roads. Um, so, if you wanted to, you could kind of dig into some of the history and find out, aha, this was the Via Ignatica or something like that, you know, one of these major Roman roads. And there's even places where you can actually go and see the actual Roman road itself. Like I know, even right outside of Split and uh, the old Roman settlement, settlement of Solian, like you can see bits of the old Roman road. So, you know, the infrastructure. Of the past empire can actually become one of the monuments or one of the tourist attractions today.
0: And all, not to keep going back to Istria, but Istria is a perfect example. If you, there's a, at the museum at the Pula Arena, there's a map of the, Rome, the Roman mm-hmm. roads, all of Istria, Roman roads, and all the towns, all the settlements the Romans did. And the only thing that has changed is some of those roads are now you know highways and asphalted and mm-hmm. the names of some of the towns have changed but nothing else has so everything the romans built in, in the, the as far as the the roads go it's it, it's the exact same and where they built cities and towns that's what's still there i mm-hmm. mean there are certain parts like on the eastern part of the of Istria peninsula they the romans didn't build and still today there's nothing there so it was like hey like they had they had it all figured out by the time by the time they uh, were crumbling, they had everything in that region figured out, and nothing's really changed other than the, you know, the uh, modern style of the roads and highways there.
1: yeah, that's pretty incredible. Um, so another thing you need to think about for a traveler in relation to these empires is borders, right? If you're used to traveling in you know central and Western Europe, you don't even think about borders anymore because most of the time, just cross country to country uh, and don't even show your passports. However, first of all, if it was part of the Tsarist Empire, it's not in the European Union. There's, I think, one categorical statement. I know that's that's not true because the Baltics are so Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania were in the Tsarist Empire and they're in the EU. But with that exception, and Finland, I guess, is debatable. So now I'm backtracking. But um, you you're going to encounter borders. Uh, if it was part of the tsarist empire and in particular maybe more relevant if it was part of the soviet union you might still need a visa so forget just rocking up to a country's airport and getting to enter some of the countries especially that because like you get into central asia um, but i think even azerbaijan uh, maybe you have to like consider visa stuff before you even go there
0: yeah exactly although i mean i think it's they've, they've streamlined it. So I had to get Mm. a visa because I went into Azerbaijan by land. But if I flew into Baku, um, I I, I think I could have got one on arrival. I'm not 100% sure. And actually, um, not that too many people are going to Belarus right now. But um, (laughs) I believe they, in the last three or four years, they, hey, you fly into Minsk, you get like a 72 hour Hmm. you know, like stay for free or something like that. Or you get the 72 hour visa uh, if you, you know, like upon arrival. Um, But yes, in general, yeah, you've got more more visas to deal with or just more border checks, because, as you said, I think other than other than Finland and Baltics, then everything else that was part of the Soviet empire is not at all in Schengen.
1: Yeah. Um, Another kind of empire thing, just as a categorization is that if it was part of the Ottoman Empire, it's probably not in the European Union. Bulgaria and Greece are the exceptions here. Romania also sort of, too, though Romania's, Mm -hmm. Romania was never fully conquered by the Ottomans. But, um, you know, that's a simple thing to mention, but it actually tells you something about the history. Is it like there's still, because of that old imperial dividing line, that's still kind of a dividing line in some ways. And it even, points to the fact that it's actually in some ways kind of weird that Bulgaria and Romania are in the European Union because they you know a lot of people said they weren't ready to join when they did join um but you know uh that that civilizational line is in some ways still intact
0: yeah I think uh with um uh I think it also just shows you that uh you know hey if you were under Ottoman Empire you're you know you you were not as as well off and so and, mm-hmm. and that obviously plays a Um, And you're not maybe uh, with with your laws and bureaucracy and other stuff, you're you're not up to whatever the EU requires. So it's Mm -hmm. not a surprise that all these Balkan countries, I mean, Croatia is like kind of Balkan, but not certainly not fully and nor was it fully under the Ottoman Empire. And Mm -hmm. same with Slovenia. And those are the two countries, uh, let's say, from Southeast Europe, Balkans area that are in the that are in the EU. And as you mentioned, Greece and Bulgaria and with Bulgaria and Romania, it was definitely I think people questioned at the time if they were if they were ready. And I think if if it was if they were going to get voted in today, um, if they were at the same stage they were in 2006, they for sure would have not gotten
1: in. Mm, Yeah, yeah, it would have been uh, it would have been. Controversial, I think, getting them in today is hugely controversial.
0: I, I think you need like you, it's, it has to be unanimous. So um, mm,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: I th- <laughs> there would be more than one country that would veto
1: that yeah, for sure. Indeed. Uh, and Andrew, I think you had a point about like finding things that are west in the Balkans, something like that.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, one thing that's kind of interesting is sometimes. You can go more east, geographically speaking, and find more Western things. As I mentioned, with some of these cities in in Ukraine, like Chernovci and uh, Lviv, uh, those are, you know, like I said, you could you could think you you could fool yourself into thinking you're in in Czech Republic or maybe even Hungary or or Austria. Because even though they're quite east, they they they're more Habsburgian. And then you can go far less east, more just south, and then you're in the in the Balkans, and then you find things that are far more eastern, just with 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 mosques and Ottoman architecture and things like that. So um, it doesn't necessarily, you know, it, it doesn't always correlate to the actual geography, because you can you can have these western, western uh, feeling places east and more eastern feeling places hmm. not really not so far east better more just south
1: yeah interesting um a, a last kind of category for me in terms of thinking about the influence of these empires on travel today is the question of can you even go there right um one unfortunate thing is that there are some places with interesting roman ruins that are now inaccessible like libya say or syria because of the kind of conflict situation in those places you know those both those places were actually part of both the ottoman and the uh, roman empires um and i'm sure have monuments from interesting places to see from both imperial pasts but you know uh, nobody should really be traveling for pleasure to libya or syria right now unfortunately um Another thing I was thinking about in terms of this, can you even go there, is there's places on the edges of what was once the Tsarist and Soviet empires, what I think Russians would call like the near abroad, where there's still trouble, where frankly, I mean, Vladimir Putin's regime often creates trouble. Things like Eastern Ukraine, which is you know, a frozen conflict, these little bits of debatably Georgia, like Abkhazia and Ossetia, frozen conflict, the bit of Moldova called, or next to Moldova called Trans- Transnistria wants to be its own country. Um, these are places which, I mean, Abkhazia and Ossetia I know have amazing landscapes. They might not be high on your travel list, but um, they are places that it's very difficult to go anyway, in part because They are on these edges of empires, and they're like still unstable and still kind of conflictual um, for various geopolitical reason reasons today.
0: Yeah, and and some of them you you know you can only get in from one side, you know, Mm -hmm. or like if you went to Abkhazia, you could go from Georgia, but you certainly couldn't go back. So then you're like, okay, well, then I'm going to need a Russian visa because the only way the only uh, way out is just going into Russia proper and getting, getting out that way. And a lot of these little autonomous regions, they're not even, they're not even, they're not even recognized by Russia. It's like, because if you think about it, you know, it's like, yeah, if you're Russia, you're like, well, yeah, it's great if South Ossetia is not part of Georgia, but we don't actually want them in our own country. It's just good for us, you know, to have this conflict and to have this maybe buffer zone with Georgia, but like, what would, like, what would Russia get out of having Hey, now we have now we have a new oblast or whatever, South mm-hmm. Ossetia. Like we don't we don't want that. So then they're just kind of no man's land. And then you have the whole area that's <clears throat> being fought over in the last few weeks, mm-hmm. in Armenia and, and and Azerbaijan. And that's also this, you know, no man's land that got, you know, that got probably further messed up by the whole Soviet empire. I mean, that's probably one of the main reasons why there's a conflict there. Um And uh, yeah, but it's like, it's, it's, it, but it's not like Armenia is like, oh, this is our, this is part of Armenia. It's, 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 it's not. So it's, it's, I mean, it's a decent chunk of land and it's not part of any country.
1: Mm. Yeah, complicated. And I was thinking about Crimea too, right? Like the Crimea is a place that, you know, I would love to go visit. And I think there's a fair bit to see there. Interestingly, a place that was also on the edges of empire, since that was, at least connected to the Ottoman Empire in one way or another for a while and there's a, an indigenous muslim population there but you know it's been annexed by Russia which is not acknowledged by most countries in the world at least as of the time we're talking and i don't know how difficult it is for foreign travelers to get into crimea but that's that's one of these post imperial places of instability that Uh, is probably off the travel list for uh, a good long while, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, you can. I think you can go there if you have a Russian visa. The problem Mm -hmm. is then you'd have to go go back the way you came because Mm -hmm. Ukraine would not let you in. You couldn't go into Ukraine if you've been into um, Mm -hmm. Crimea, just like um, this um, um, Nagorno-Karabakh region that's getting fought over. If if I if I if I went there, uh, before I went into Azerbaijan, I mean, I had to answer questions and I was like, no, I didn't go there. And I didn't, but you know, if you went into, the, if you went into that disputed region, then you could not get let into Azerbaijan. You would, you, they just wouldn't let you in. And that's the way it is with, um, Crimea and Ukraine. So I think for a future episode, I will talk about my travels in Crimea. Um, mm, okay. Because I was definitely one, one of the most interesting areas or regions that I'd ever been in. And I was, Extremely looking forward to, to a second visit uh, when I moved to Europe. And uh, I, I think two months before I moved to Europe is when I got annexed. And that was like, well, there goes my summer travel plans. <laughs> right. um, but it, 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 it is amazing. And I don't know if, it, if it'll ever be, it, you'll ever be able to travel in it again, but I'd love to talk about it sometime because you really see a lot of different empires and cultures in, in, hmm. in a small area there.
1: So yeah, I'd love to hear about that. I haven't heard I haven't heard your Crimea Crimea stories, and I would mm-hmm. love to hear about those. And actually, another example that just I just thought of is uh, where can you go and where can you not go, and just ease of travel. And it also connects to empires and kind of geopolitics of today and the past. Is at least earlier this year when I was in Turkey and before the pandemic and was thinking of going to Armenia. Like you can't you can't cross land borders from Turkey to Armenia. And you can't even fly from Turkey to Armenia. At least there were no flights when I was looking early in the year, because of like historic bad blood uh, between Turkey and Armenia, both once ruled by the Ottoman Empire, but of course the Armenian genocide in the early part of the 20th century, um, it, you know, terrible historic occurrence that uh, still today makes travel between those two countries effectively impossible. Yeah. So
0: Ben, my my last take on this whole topic of empires is kind of my personal, like ironic take on it. Uh, as a as a traveler and where I run tours and what I'm interested in, for sure the three the three empires that I'm you know most interested in and traveled mostly in would be Soviet Empire, Ottoman Empire and Habsburgs. And if we could pick a capital for each of those, I think you would agree that for a Soviet empire, that would be Moscow. For Ottoman empire, that would be Istanbul. And for Habsburg empire, that would be Vienna. Does that sound right? Yeah, sure. Uh, the ironic thing is those three cities are probably the least interesting places for me. <laughs> so, so I mean, I, 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 the first time I was in Moscow, I spent about a week there and I'm glad I did. There's a lot to see, but in the 21 years since I've only been back to like catch a train or fly into the mm. airport or whatever. It's it's not, it's it's really not my cup of tea. I'm definitely more a St. Petersburg kind of guy mm. if, you know, I don't know. I always figured I, that that St. Petersburg and Moscow would be, I don't know, maybe New York and San Francisco or LA and in New York mm. or something like that.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm definitely
0: a, you know, the St. Petersburg uh, kind of guy. Um, with the Habsburg Empire, I once again, I've been to Vienna probably a few times for maybe five or six days, but I swear for that kind of classic big Central European city, give me Budapest, give me Prague, uh-huh. give me Krakow. I don't know what it is, but the allure there is just, it's not there for me. Interesting. Um, <laughs> and um, and for, for Istanbul, uh, I guess I spent so much time in all these Ottoman uh, territories, uh, you know, countries now in Europe, that when I got there, it was just so, it was so crowded. And I had kind of Istanbul 1960s running through my head because I would watch these films from, from that kind of golden age of travel. And I was like, this is what Istanbul is gonna be like. And it's gonna be kind of like some of these places I went in the Balkans. And then you're stuck in Blue Mosque with 3000 people and you have 10 minutes to do everything and then you need to move on. And, and every two steps you take you, someone's trying to sell you something. So, and I would definitely go back to Istanbul, but it's it was just kind of disappointing because I guess I I had all these, been to these other Ottoman places and had this different view in my head of what it used to be like. And it definitely wasn't like that in the 21st century.
1: Huh. Interesting. Well, I mean, I'm a little surprised um, uh, on on some of that stuff. I get the especially the, the Budapest thing and that I feel like places like Budapest or Prague have a, an immediate wow value that Vienna doesn't uh, just because of their setting. Um, the Istanbul one, yeah, it's a huge megalopolis, um, and it has some downsides, but man, I just feel like there's so much history there and it's such a, uh, amazing setting that, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's like the magic is hard to get because it's so crowded uh, and there's a lot of tourists and that kind of stuff. But for me, that's a place where it's, it's definitely worth digging for the magic to find it
0: oh yeah and i definitely would recommend all three of these places and probably Mm -hmm. Istanbul over uh over the other three and i want to go back and see more i think it was this combination of like i'd been to all these ottoman places but never the home of the ottomans and and Mm -hmm. so i was like more just I don't know more used to like what I'd seen in the Balkans per se and also yes it was the last week of August that's when I had to go with the with with the tour group and it wasn't you know it's it wasn't Venice it wasn't like Dubrovnik with five cruise ships in port Mm -hmm. but you know because it's a big city so it can it obviously can absorb it can absorb the people but it was just it I think I had this you know I had this ideal in my head of what it was going to be like, and it wasn't like that. So I, I need to go back, and it's been seven years now. So I think I'll go back next time, not you know expecting any of the stuff I did before, and that'll probably give me a, a better experience there.
1: Yeah, well, um, as always, it's about expectations, uh, you know, what you go in with. But I think it's it is an interesting perspective. Um, on sometimes maybe the imperial capitals are actually not the what end up being the travel highlights for some people.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you know when when we when we go into a um, uh, uh, future episodes with uh, talking about second cities and you know non capital cities, uh, I, I think we could just discuss more of that because mm-hmm. cer- certainly. Uh, and, and I I say, certainly, like almost all capitals are worth visiting, whether or not they're the actual highlight of the country or of that old empire uh, kind of is a, is a different matter.
1: So mm-hmm. that has been our look at some of the historic empires in Central and Eastern Europe, um, what they have meant in terms of their influence on society, politics, economics, culture, and then even the influence still today on what it means to travel in these places. Um, a lot of these themes, I think will keep on coming back to um, just what is the influence of some of these places today? Um, what can you see from these uh, historical empires in some of the places, the destination focused topics that Andrew and I will do in the future. But I hope this was been that this has been a useful kind of historical dive uh, and including some practical, aspects of what the uh, Empire's influence is on traveling in this part of the world
0: so last episode I alluded to uh, that I would give a little talk on how to capture the essence of travel if you're just in your own hometown like when you get back uh, from traveling and you know you can't travel for a while that they the kind of like oh it's kind of, it's a downer, and you're you know you feel like oh I'm back in this other dimension or I'm back in the old rat race, um, so just an idea of like how to maybe keep in touch with your travel community uh, while you're in your hometown and and to meet other travelers that are visiting your town just like you know you were visiting their cities and other places. Uh, so one of the th- things I did when I first got back from my big six month travel was I thought you know where did I meet most of these other travelers? Well, I stayed at hostels mainly, so I went to the big uh, international youth hostel in Seattle, which used to be at the Pike Place Market, and I just went in and I said, hey, you know, can I volunteer for something here? Is there something I could do? And they said, oh, yeah, there's a concierge desk, so you can give out information, uh, give recommendations of places to go or where to eat, kind of explain maps, you know, look at all the events going on, sports or music or other things, so, You could just talk with people, and I would volunteer, I don't know, a couple times a week for two or three hours, and then I would get to meet all these different, uh, you know, travelers into Seattle and give them, you know, help them out, just like other people helped me out when I was traveling in Europe, Um, and some of that led to things like, oh, hey, we've got uh, tickets for sporting events, so if you want to take a group of, of travelers to a baseball game, for instance, you can. Mm. Uh, so then I would volunteer for that, and, and then I realized quickly, like I'll take, the, I'll take the, I'll hopefully I'll take all the Koreans and Japanese because they don't have to explain much to them because they already know everything about baseball and. Mm. Of course, this is like when we had uh, when uh, Seattle had Ichiro. So most of them already wanted to go anyway to see to see their their uh, player. And then it was interesting when I would take the Europeans, the Australians to baseball, like how much I have to explain or like Mm -hmm. this is kind of kind of silly. Like, why are are all there these so many rules? Uh, And then you learn a little bit, too, just about uh, what things are similar to. Uh, cricket, for example, because Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about cricket. So uh, I know I had some Indians once and some Aussies and I would be like, okay, what's, what are the similarities and the differences? So that would be, that would be one, you know, thing I would uh, uh, say is if you could volunteer somewhere or, you know, at a, at a hostel, that's a great place to get in touch with, um, with, with travelers. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, another thing to do is you know, whatever countries you went to, see if they have local communities where you live. Um, And just by chance, there was a a guy came to fix the copy machine at the law firm I was working with. And he had some accent and I said, oh, excuse me, are you Russian? Of course, he's like, no, I'm Polish. And I was like, oh shit, Uh, Uh, (laughs) but uh, he wasn't offended. And I said, oh, hey, I just got back from this trip and I'd been to these places in Poland and blah, 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 blah. And he's like, oh, you know, there's a Polish community center. Uh, that has huh. dinners on friday nights and i was like no i have no idea and when he told me where it was it was like three blocks from <laughs> from where i lived up on capitol hill um so you know then i was like okay i'll go to this and it was great you'd go on a friday night and it, when i first started going it was mo- mainly just polish speaking people whether they were younger people speaking polish or you know older generations mm-hmm. there and Then you got in on all the food that you liked, and you know whatever Polish uh, uh, vodka, things like that, Polish beer. Uh, So that was like like something, you know. Of course, it was right around the corner from me, and I didn't know about it. So you know, it was kind of nice to tap into the local community Mm -hmm. uh, to get things like that. Um, And then the last thing I bring up is just all these different kind of arts, culture, food things that that go on, like festivities um or film fests or whatever uh in your own backyard so um you know i just noticed hey here's orthodox church you know i knew where the orthodox churches were and they would have festivals or holidays and for sure you can go there and you're gonna get borscht you know or some pierogies or some feminis or or you know uh what whatever it is, and probably, you know, maybe hear some of the languages from from those countries. Um, or you go to the film festival, like I used to a lot, and it was like the more obscure and smaller the country, the film came from, like the better the chance that you would for sure meet people. Uh, whether they're, I mean, most of them, of course, are, you know, immigrants, you know, living now in, in the US, but you would always, you know, hear, them talking their language because they're for sure going to go see that one film from their country that you know it's like every five years there's one film from like kyrgyzstan uh so hmm. that makes it to america and you can meet them there um or you could even kind of check up on cultural things i found an estonian choir group which baltics are famous for their choral music and they were coming to university of washington for a performance so i want you know i went and got a ticket this is like the first, I probably hadn't been to the Baltics for three or four years, and this is my only chance to get some little flavor of that culture that I enjoyed there, and then, of course, I ended up meeting the people who were going to this. There were quite a few of Baltic heritage, and then you have interesting conversation, because they're like, what? You've been to my home country? Why would you do that? (laughs) Right. Uh, So, um, those are just some ideas of how you can kind of uh, relive and get back in touch with either the communities or some of other travelers in your own hometown.
1: And I can add one too, which I will admit doesn't come from personal experience because I've never used it, but I've heard that it can be good. And that is couchsurfing. So the website, I think it's couchsurfing.com. Um, people use it sometimes, you know, when they're just like looking for a free place to stay. Uh, and it might not just be international travelers, but I've also heard that um, there's uh, like couchsurfing meetups, and so you know they'll organize in in any kind of town. Uh, hey, you know anybody who's in town right now want to meet up at X Y Z bar um, this evening for drinks or something like that. And I think especially in some of the more popular um or destinations that see more travelers especially from more likely to attract people from outside of the country wherever whichever country you're living in that um these couch surfing events might actually draw some people from far away and so it's kind of another potentially another good way to uh, meet travelers even if you're staying home i've also heard that sometimes couch surfing um stuff can be a little sketchy if you're staying in somebody's home again I, I haven't experienced it but you know i'm presumably the sketchy uh, uh occasions are the minority but if you know if you've if, you've ha- if you have a strong opinion about couch surfing you can uh, leave us a message on uh, anchor and uh, and uh, give us a diatribe
0: well ben i think that wraps up this rather long episode what you know we had a lot to talk about on this one
1: thanks for listening everybody until next time